Hello, and thank you for joining our Journal Club in Neurology podcast. The Journal Club podcasts are developed in collaboration with At Point of Care and Projects in Knowledge and are part of a continuing medical education series. This CME-CE activity is supported by educational grants from Acadia Pharmaceuticals and Biogen MA. In this episode, Dr. Robert Hauser and Dr. Lashman Baru will discuss special considerations in Parkinson's disease and COVID-19. Information about the faculty and disclosures can be found at journalclubpodcast.com forward slash Parkinson's disease. You can use this link to receive your credit and evaluate this program. The URL can also be accessed in the episode notes. Dr. Hauser is Professor of Neurology and Director of the University of South Florida's Parkinson's Disease and Movement Disorders Center in Tampa, which is recognized as a Parkinson's Foundation Center of Excellence. Dr. Baru is Vice Chair of Finance and Director of the Neurology Residency Program in the Division of Movement Disorders in the Department of Neurology at MedStar Georgetown University Hospital, Washington, D.C., where he is also an Associate Professor of Neurology. I am your host, Candace Hoffman. Let's begin our discussion. So today we're going to discuss the paper published in the Journal of Clinical Medicine um, entitled Knowledge, Attitudes, Practices, and the Burden During COVID-19 Pandemic in People with Parkinson's Disease in Germany. And it was by Hannah M. Ziprich and colleagues. Um, it was a telephone survey. They ended up with 35 women and 64 men with Parkinson's disease. Uh, median age was 72. Their MDS-UPDRS score was 26. Um, and their mean MSQ score was 10.5. Um, the survey questions were asking about the patient's knowledge of COVID, whether they had behavioral changes um, in regard to um, dealing with COVID-19, and how the, the pandemic was affecting them day to day, whether physically, emotionally, keeping up with their treatment. Um, 87% of those surveyed viewed the virus as dangerous and they um, reduced their social contacts. Are you seeing this, Dr. Hauser, in your current clinical practice? Yeah, I think patients recognize that it's dangerous for older individuals and that Parkinson's disease increases the danger potentially. Um, but I think there's also been a progression with regard to that. I know early on, I remember talking to a number of patients about it, and they said that they were isolating. And when I asked them about it, I said, well, what does that mean? They said, well, we're not leaving our neighborhood. And I'm like, okay, so what's going on in your neighborhood? Oh, well, we still have people from the neighborhood come over. And, you know, it's not in our neighborhood. We, we live in a gated community, and uh, nobody has it. I'm like, whoa, wait a minute. Uh, people can come in from outside the neighborhood, or people in your gated community can visit outside your neighborhood. So I think over time, people have understood that uh, I'm in Tampa, and initially, a lot of the virus uh, prevalence was up in the Northeast, and then it came down into Florida much more so later. And I think as that happened, people got a lot more savvy about it. So yes, people are, are isolating, and that's also had a lot of consequences that uh, people do feel that they miss that social interaction. Uh, some people try to do as much as they can on Zoom, and I talk to my patients about that. And uh, I think we'll talk later about uh, trying to also maintain a lot of things with respect to their disease without necessarily going out. 
And Dr. Baru. Well, our experience is a little bit different than Tampa just because of the geography and much of this initially started you know, in the West Coast and then of course in New York City. By virtue of the fact that we are about a three hour to two hour train ride away from New York City, there was a big concern about having a surge literally come from New York City down to DC. So I, I would almost call it, you know, our response in mid-March, April, May was almost apoplectic on the patient end, that literally the world has come to an end, people canceled their appointments, people no-showed, virtual visits started picking up around that time, and many of our patients that are older, some of them actually, quote-unquote, escaped, as they called it, to either their shore house, where they had less people, or to their mountain cabins, or even left for points unknown you know, and it just left us a number and said, I'm going to Florida. A couple of our patients said, we're going to Florida early and just staying there as if they were going to outrun the virus. Um, for us, the isolation was very different. A lot of our patients said they were isolating from everybody and they were going to even isolate from their children and especially their teenagers, uh, grandchildren, uh, teenage grandchildren who were actually going to be more social. And they said, you know, I'm going to insist that they can meet me on Zoom. And they even at some point, one, one or two patients told me that they actually asked their family members before they met that they were going to have them take a COVID test before coming over for a visit. And I, so we've saw, we saw certainly much more extreme behavior. And that I would say would probably be March uh, to April, May, maybe. By June, the attitudes changed. That surge in D.C. never quite occurred the way it did in New York. And, and people kind of tended to normalize it after a little while. They felt they'd been you know, the surge had bypassed us. And as other parts of the country got more affected in the summer, the DC folks kind of came to a more level uh, setting of maybe socializing with appropriate measures, um, maybe socializing less frequently, less trips and precautions, but not necessarily the isolation that we saw in March, April, May. Mm -hmm. Another point um, from the study, and, and I think it's very interesting. I mean, again, we're talking Germany, we have Florida, and we have DC now. So we have three geographical areas that we're talking about, all with possibly different takes on uh, living during a, a pandemic. In this study, they said that while people viewed the virus as dangerous, only about a third, only about 30%, could explain why preventive measures such as hand washing was important. And they said it wasn't that these were not people with cognitive disorders, these were not people who were depressed, and these were not people who did not have a good education. They said that they just didn't see the knowledge of the virus translating into these preventive measures. And I'm wondering too, if this also ties in with um, them finding that the patients who were non-compliant with their therapies also made them non-compliant with COVID-19 preventive measures. So, um, Whoever wants to go on that first, uh, Dr. Hauser or Dr. Baru? Well, it's interesting because you know so we, when we see noncompliance in clinic, we kind of wonder, is it noncompliance directed towards because of the person treating them? Is it that they just don't understand? What is the root of your noncompliance? And, and I find that some patients are just noncompliant across the board. I think that's just that's their, their mentality. They see certain things and they kind of challenge what they see and maybe they don't necessarily believe it. Some people might be non-compliant from accepting and other things. Um, I have to be. I have to say, even my patients that are semi-non-compliant about maybe Parkinson's medications or more so therapy. Therapy is a big issue with uh, of non-compliance because it requires much more effort to take. You know, the medication non-compliance is a different factor. You know, you feel the symptoms come on board even though they're non-compliant, but you feel that risk-reward issue up front. 
Whereas in therapy, it requires you to go somewhere multiple times a day, multiple times a week to have to do the exercises. Then you have a therapist who's evaluating you. So they feel more pressure. And so they avoid that. Many of those individuals were probably happy to get rid of their therapy in the early COVID era. Uh, though I think they've seen full circle what happens when you do get rid of therapy over an extended period of time. But the non-compliance didn't for us translate into masks. Masks were heavily put on by patients. Patients were very concerned about even coming to hospital-based clinics. Uh, I have two offices. I have a hospital-based office and I have a satellite office. My time is split between the two. The hospital-based practice across the board for neurology became a ghost town within a couple of days. You know, we would have a full waiting room. We went from a full waiting room to a bare bones waiting room at the main campus in the hospital. But the satellite practices still maintained some level of uh, patients that came through. And it's interesting because people were very scared of even coming near a hospital because Georgetown happened to have COVID cases on it uh, at the time. So they were like, my con I'm concerned about getting COVID if I come to your clinic. And I said, my clinic is several buildings away from the inpatient unit and the ICU. No, no, but I have a higher risk of attaining COVID. I said, You're, you have the same risk of attaining COVID just from stepping outside your house, but it just didn't translate. So while the volume in our outpatient clinics was, was, didn't drop as much, and over the course of time, it's actually gained as the volume in our main hospital-based clinic has actually reduced. Kind of interesting trends that I'm seeing about how people view concerns and safety between masks and hand washing and where they feel the higher risk is. Dr. Hauser, what are you seeing? Yeah, yeah, I, uh, I think that's right. I mean, I, I believe this is probably an underlying personality trait. Um, I see it all the time. I have two kids, a boy who likes to follow the rules. Drives me a little crazy because I think of myself as not quite as much of a, a rule follower. And then I have a daughter who's not a rule follower at all. And that's just a personality. So I think there's a lot of that. But I must say the other point by itself is about hand washing and patients may not understand it. And something I didn't really think about until I saw this article. I mean, it seemed pretty obvious to me and something I haven't really spoken to my patients about um, and made, made me think maybe I need to talk to them more about that. And something I do see in the office all the time is this mask wearing where it's not covering the nose. And that I think is pretty obvious. We see it all the time. And to explain, take the time to explain to patients why it's important for the mask to be over the nose and mouth, I think was probably uh, helpful to go a long way to make patients more, quote, compliant in doing that to help them keep from spreading the virus. It's very different. I mean, I um, have spoken to a social worker who had lived in Japan for a long time, and he said there, whenever there is an outbreak of anything, even just in flu season, you know, everybody dons a mask. And when he first came over to America, and he was working in clinic and he um, felt that he was getting a cold. So he went to work with a mask and they said, oh, you can't do that, you're scaring everybody. So we have the social differences as well and we haven't quite adapted yet to the mask wearing. There's some of that and America is uh, the, the nation of rugged individualism. So that has made it so, so that some people don't wanna follow some of these rules. The other thing I see, and you know, if we point the finger at ourselves, Back when we were traveling and going to meetings, doctors are the worst when they're sick. We have a very high sense of responsibility. We want to do our jobs. We go to these meetings if we're sick or not. We take medications. We hide the fact that we're sick. We don't want to show the weakness of being sick. And then we get all our friends and colleagues ill. It's, it's horrible. Uh, <laughs> but now we're not traveling. So 
uh, people don't get sick right now. Right. That's actually, it's actually interesting that you brought that up because having traveled throughout uh, East Asia, you tend to see folks wearing masks even on routine airplane flights. You know, and so you almost become self-conscious of, should I be wearing a mask? You know, why aren't we wearing a mask? So it's very interesting. You see that throughout China. We saw that in, in Hong Kong um, as well as in, in Japan. Uh, in, you know, when we've traveled to, through East Asia. On the other hand, uh, I, Dr. Hauser will remember that uh, when we were in London earlier this year, before COVID really became reality in America, or even in Europe at that point in January, a lot of folks from Asia were wearing masks. And it's something that's very important. And I suspect they were wearing masks because of COVID issues or long distance travel. But it, it made me certainly self-conscious at Heathrow saying, should I be wearing a mask? And if I'm not, what am I missing out on? <laughs> right. So back, and back to the study, along with the preventive measures, you also have the psychological impact of, of this pandemic. And um, for a patient with Parkinson's disease, um, the worry and the anxiety, um, they found that nearly 60% were worried about contracting the virus, but also the economic and social issues were coming in. So here in America, how is that kind of affecting your patients? Yeah, I think this is very real and probably under-recognized. I saw a patient the other day who was in a study and almost all clinical trials these days, we do have to ask them about suicide. And I had seen this patient many times in the study and everything was fine. And when I asked about suicide, she admitted, yeah, she was thinking about suicide and had even started thinking about ways she might commit suicide. And it was extremely surprising to me um, and I was just thinking that in a normal routine visit, I probably wouldn't have dug as deep as the forced questions in the clinical trial uh, forced me to go. And fortunately, we were able to arrange for her to see the social worker, get some mental health counseling. Um, and interestingly, uh, her children, well, her daughter is a doctor, and she was saying, well, I don't want to involve my daughter. I don't want to burden her with this. And I'm thinking, oh, my goodness, her daughter is the first person who would want to know and get her the help. And it just goes to show, I think, that we may not be paying quite as much attention to this as we should. Now, on the other hand, I think the social isolation, as I mentioned before, is pretty obvious. And when I see patients, especially uh, on telehealth, and those are the patients who are really isolating, I talk about how are you interacting. We talk about ways to go on the internet and get involved in uh, support groups, even social activities. What social activities can you find on the internet? And also things like exercise programs on the internet. A lot of the foundations offer these, and I think they're very helpful. Mm -hmm. Dr. Baru. There's a lot of anxiety uh, amongst individuals when COVID first came out. I, I think people harkened back to, you know, uh, this was going to be something that was going to really uh, kill off a lot of individuals over the age of 60. And of course, mortality was higher uh, in, in older individuals. So they were very concerned about that. Uh, over the course of time, that has gotten better. Although I will tell you the people that are the most anxious even now have some underlying anxiety from other issues as well. So just as we were talking previously about kind of broad non-compliance being like a personality issue of you know bucking the rules, this is kind of like my anxiety used to be about my Parkinson's or you know uh, about issues like balance or other things has now spread into, well, that plus now the future and COVID and will I get a vaccine and will one become available? And it's kind of spread into all these other issues with this. So it's kind of interesting to see how folks have adapted around this issue or adapted with this issue. And that, that's something I wanted to ask is with Parkinson's disease, is there 
in general, more anxiety and or depression or other kind of psychological comorbidities that come just with the disease itself? Oh, absolutely. There is a much higher risk of depression. I think numbers I see are close to 60-70% of individuals will experience some level of depression. And there's been a lot of discussion on what causes this depression. There's the, you know, the neurobiological component of it, you know, the issue of, you know, neurotransmitter changes, or is it just reactive depression to the fact that this is a disease that many people view incorrectly so as a death sentence in many ways. You know, they're saying, okay, my, this is it. My life is going to be radically different from the moment onwards. So there's a lot of different depression from adjusting to the diagnosis to kind of seeing progressive disability to just, you know, by neurochemical changes. There's certainly a lot of anxiety mixed with this depression. And that's only one of several neuropsychiatric issues. There's also obsessive compulsive and punding behaviors that we see. There's also psychosis, which I have to say has not gotten better in the setting of COVID, especially for our nursing home patients. That vulnerable population has become even more vulnerable because they've lost physical therapy. They've lost the support system of the nursing home with other residents. They've lost the support system of family members not being allowed and being only allowed on limited uh, virtual visits. And then now they've become progressively more and more uh, disoriented and have cognitively worsened. And that has certainly brought about more hallucinations. Dr. Hauser? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, uh, when you think about what we try to do with patients over time is keep them engaged, keep their mind engaged, keep their body engaged. And what is all this about? Well, isolate and they're not as engaged mentally or physically. Uh, they may have apathy that Again, they're not able to fight as well. So all these things uh, really present hurdles for us to think about how do we overcome. Mm -hmm. And I think we already really kind of touched on it, but in, in case either of you want to expand, about 33% had decreasing mobility and worsening symptoms uh, due to not being able to keep up with therapies. So do we want to maybe touch a little bit upon you know, the worsening symptoms and how is that being handled in the midst of this pandemic? So I'll, I'll take that one. This, this has been a particularly interesting year for us, at least in the greater DC area. Um, summer usually is more likely a season for manifesting orthostasis in individuals. You can, I, I, I think maybe Florida might be the same situation with even more, more heat. But starting June, July, as the summer really heats up for us, we tend to see a lot more orthostasis. Now, this time we didn't see as much orthostasis because a lot of folks didn't go outside. Uh, so they were sequestered at home much more, but we saw a lot more balance issues, postural issues with this. And, and the, probably patients came in maybe two different varieties. I think I would like to believe majority of my patients lamented the loss of physical therapy. And maybe it wasn't exactly physical therapy um, or exercise classes, but maybe the social component of it as well. Maybe they didn't separate the two out. Uh, something like rock steady boxing has become not only a physical outlet for individuals, especially my more motivated, more active Parkinson's patients, but also an outlet for them socially as well as their spouses. So it's kind of fills multiple roles. And many of those folks that are the more motivated, again, the more compliant folks, those classes went to virtual very quickly. And many of those folks jumped on board. My other folks that were probably maybe more uh, neutral, maybe a little bit more um, ambivalent about physical therapy, said, well, my physical therapy ended, I can't do anything about it. And as those virtual classes came on board, they were kind of a little slower to join in. Now, maybe that's an older population, maybe they're not as tech savvy, maybe there's other facets to, this, to, this, uh, to these points. But I noticed those individuals that weren't, were ambivalent to begin with about physical therapy were also ambivalent about picking it up virtually, 
And I often got a lot of telltale spouses who, as I would ask the patient on a virtual visit saying, how are you doing? I'm doing some. We really want him to do a class a day, a uh, different class a day, and it's available free. But he or she is really not doing any classes. Maybe they might be doing one class a week. So I get the, 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 the telltale spouse comes and tells me the truth of what's really going on. But I, I think this, this is part of that broader trend that we talked about, compliance, non-compliance issues. Yeah. Right. I looked at it as kind of a, sort of in the global scheme of things. Just imagine, you know, you're coming to see us for a year or two and we're saying, make sure you're doing your exercise, make sure you're going to physical therapy. And then all of a sudden, quote, either you can't because we really can't do the physical therapy or the exercise is taken away, but you can do it virtually. Okay. Well, uh, I haven't really been into it lately, but I used to do a lot of in-person uh, group classes where the music's playing and all the young people are jumping around near me. Oh, it's so motivating and it gets your brain chemicals going. It's fantastic. Um, it's not the same online. Now, I haven't really delved into it with patients, but I imagine they find the same thing. Uh, you probably don't get the same intensity and the same motivation out of online classes. We certainly want them to do it because it's many, many, many times better than nothing. But I think that's an issue. And like Dr. Baru says, they're probably not doing it as often. Uh, they're probably not doing it as intensely. And I think that feeds into this issue of, hey, how am I doing with my Parkinson's disease? And we haven't even yet got into what am I doing about my doctor's visit? You know, I was going to Dr. X, in this case, Dr. Baru, and he was adjusting my medication. Well, either now I, maybe I want to postpone my visit, which a lot of patients are doing, or I'm doing it uh, via telehealth. Am I really getting as good a care? Is it as good as going into the office? I think that can set up a lot of anxiety. Yeah. Um, so we're going to move on to telehealth in a minute, but just in looking at, again, the study was done in Germany. Um, generalizable? I mean, do you feel that, that, I mean, this was a very small study done, I think, a couple months ago, actually. Um, Valid? I mean, do you think that this is really, I mean, that these are good takeaways for clinicians to kind of be aware of and have on their radar when they're talking to their Parkinson's disease patients? I think so. I think it has some broad generalization about a portion of patients not being compliant, a portion of patients being concerned, those that are taking those proactive measures. Maybe, maybe yes, there's an educational gap between what we consider isolate yourself and what they really isolate themselves with or the, the, the nuances of, you know, how the disease is spread. Maybe those are not, maybe those are lost on them, but it's, it's generalizable in some way, shape or form. I think it's, it's a moving target. What, how my patients reacted in March, April, May is very different than what they're reacting to in September. Folks that literally missed appointments and we're not even talking about follow-up appointments. We're talking about procedure appointments. These are individuals that will come in for botulinum toxin injections. They came in in February, missed their appointment, are now all the more apt to come in for their appointments and they're completely fine doing in-person visits. And some of my patients have actually gone from doing no visits and avoiding virtual to coming in in person. So it's a moving target. Our attitude changes as the longer we go through this, the, the more your attitude changes. Either you become more cautious because you kind of find yourself more and more lucky that you've not gotten COVID or you say, well, you know, I haven't gotten it so far, so my chances are less. And probably neither of them are true, but we've kind of had that human mentality of saying, well, either A, I out outran it, or no, it's just waiting for me around the corner. Right. Dr. Hauser? Yeah, I, I agree 100%. Uh, it's impossible to know for sure, but I think these uh, take-home messages ring true to my ear. Um, so I think people are people and are pretty much reacting the same. 
I think Dr. Brewer is exactly right that if you did this every couple of months, you'd see some changes over time. Um, but I think the take-home messages are valid and, and probably generalizable to the U.S. Okay. Right, so now we're going to jump into telehealth. And I know, Dr. Hauser, you're not a huge fan. And Dr. Baru, I understand that you like it. So, um, Dr. Hauser, tell me first why this is not quite your cup of tea. I think the underlying root cause is because I'm old. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so, so it, it stems from a couple of things. Number one, uh, I, think it, I think it's just a, the psychology of distance. That's number one. It's not the same as having a patient in the office. You can see things in the office that you just can't see uh, via telehealth. That's number one. Number two, at least at our institution, we went through a couple months where the rule was only the patient could come to the office if they were going to come to the office. So that was a, a kind of a no man's land between telehealth and inpatient. But now in the office, patients can bring their spouse. Um, I will say whether it's telehealth or in the office, having the spouse or care partner is really critical. Uh, so that's important. But for me, a lot of it has to do with the technology. Some of our patients, it really takes a long time or they're unable to get the technology hooked up. So things take longer. I'm not a great aficionado of electronic medical records. So I get a lot of help from my team getting it set up, taking care of the electronic medical records. And it really allows me to focus on the patient, make, have the intercourse with them, uh, talk about their disease, do a good examination, examine things like gait that are a little hard, uh, rigidity I can examine and then make decisions all the time interacting with the patient and I can do it more efficiently in office. So my bias was always to do telehealth when we had to and we couldn't do things adequately in the office, either when COVID first hit and those were the rules from our institution or when care providers weren't allowed and it just wasn't going to work for most of our, our uh, markets and patients. But when care providers were allowed and patients were willing to come to the office, uh, I just find it's more effective overall. Uh, so that's my preference. Now, for patients who want telehealth, we still do it. A lot of patients do like it, I must say, as a patient, I do like it to avoid the drive, to avoid the wait. Uh, I love it. And I kind of wonder though, you know, my medical problems are pretty superficial and pretty easy. And sometimes I wonder, well, what if I had something I consider a little deeper like Parkinson's disease? Would I still feel the same way or would I want to be in the office where I can get that a little bit more intimate and deeper evaluation? Not really 100% sure, but I kind of feel that way. So, you know, ask me in another decade or so. Um, but anyhow, my preference is in office when it can be done. Okay, Dr. Baru. So I, my, my perspective is in some ways similar, in some ways different. I, I agree that the challenges that Dr. Hauser pointed out are completely correct. I mean, the technical challenges are probably the most frustrating aspect of it. Being able to log in, having them log in uh, is, is, is frustrating. And yes, sometimes the technical challenges are unsurmountable in many ways. Uh, the best way I've surmounted some of those technical challenges is, let's, okay, let's do this as a phone visit. Um, which brings me to the point that one of the advantages of telehealth is that telehealth is kind of an umbrella term for, you know, virtual visit where we are face-to-face -face like, like you, we would be on, on, a, on a meeting, a virtual meeting, or it could be a telephone conversation or even portal messaging kind of becomes a way to communicate. So sometimes I've had to uh, ditch the, 
the virtual visit and say, let's just do this by phone. Of course, there's limitations there. And limitations for all telehealth is, of course, obviously what, what we talked about. It is just not the same as a live visit. A live visit involves a much more richer human interaction. I get to see the full patient. I get to see what's going on as they're sitting there and not just the view that telehealth affords me into their, into their living room. On the other hand, the counterpoint to that I'd give you is telehealth gives me an idea of what their home environment looks like. In many ways, I get to see what their home environment looks like. That gives me an idea of how, how they're managing their home life. If I see disheveled things in the background or do I see a neat, neatly kept home? gives me a little bit more of a window into their life than I would get from a virtual visit, than I would get from a live visit. Um, yes, the examinations are complete, are limited, and I do have to have them, you know, prop the camera, move around in certain directions, and the examination is limited. I can't examine tone. Uh, I may or may not get a snapshot, a snapshot uh, of everything I get in a live visit. However, um, the advantage is, of course, travel. I think for some of our patients that are traveling from uh, two hours away, two and a half hours away. This is a godsend to be able to say, okay, we instead of doing a televisit, instead of doing a live visit, can we do televisits in between? So travel time elimination is good. It's safer. Certainly, they're safer in their house, and we're safer in, in our offices, and there's less interaction with people. In that sense, um, at least the good news is that at least it's being reimbursed, and for the time being, at least hopefully maybe beyond. Um, so we are able to communicate with our patients better, and I'm able to get them in. At times, I would normally never get a patient in. Um, one great example is if I offered somebody who lives two and a half hours away a nine o'clock appointment, they may not be able to make it to the office between until 11, and they may opt to finish by one or two, which limits their ability to see me. On the other hand, if we make a medication change, now I say come back in about two to three weeks and come, come in for a 9.30 telehealth visit, of course, because they're up at eight. So they can easily do a 9.30 telehealth visit. So it's allowed me to be able to be flexible about being able to put them on a schedule where they're able to be seen more easily. And rather than kind of discussing saying, okay, well, you know, I'd like to see you in two weeks, but I only have a 9.30. Okay, well, maybe, I'll, maybe we'll just, we all agree to make it a five-week visit or an eight-week visit or, or go straight to the next three-month visit. So it's, it's been helpful in scheduling them. <clears throat> Certainly gives me more eyes on them. Um, the other thing, of course, is that virtual visits sometimes are incredibly helpful um, just to give them an idea of when they, what they're doing. Now, there are many patients of ours and our patients, um, because of their motor fluctuations, will pick times when they're doing their best. So they'll pick times and say, I'll see you at 10 o'clock for the next appointment when we ask them to schedule it. Why? Because 10 o'clock is their good on. They're, they're, they're doing well consistently at 10 o'clock. So we always see that, that single picture of them doing really well at those times while they complain about tremor or they complain about dyskinesias, we don't see that as much. Now in their home visits, I've turned, I've called in on a home visit and I've seen an individual terribly dyskinetic. Why? Because this was an appointment in the afternoon when he gets dyskinetic and I got a snapshot of what those dyskinesias look like, though we'd asked him to produce videos of what dyskinesias look like for him or for Ms. Thompson, they just never happened. But now we got to see, I was like, oh, wow, that is a tremendous amount of dyskinesia or somebody who experienced a dose failure sitting in saying, I took my 930 medication in preparation for our 10 and it doesn't work. Now this is a person that sees me in the afternoon when they're doing well, but the mornings are more of a challenge and I got to see what that looks like. So it gives us an idea of one, what their living conditions are like, but also a snapshot into what, when they fluctuate, which we don't necessarily get to see those fluctuations we get to hear about, but now I get to see them. So there's, there's nuances and pros and cons to any situation. I think for me, the telehealth pros outweigh the cons one of the biggest uh, pros is, of course, we're no longer bound by availability of clinic room or staff. 
if I have to add in a patient and I happen to need to see them and the only time I can see them is Tuesday afternoon at 3.30, they don't have to be available except in their house. I don't have to be available except in my office and we can quickly do a visit and focus on the key points. But again, it is important to set those expectations and say the visits are much more focused and not as comprehensive as a Parkinson's visit would be. And being there's certainly challenges in doing you know, depression screenings and memory tests on, uh, virtually than they are in person. You mentioned that sometimes you would rather do a phone call rather than a video visit. Why? Yes. Uh, interesting, because, and even within our own division, we don't have a con consistency on this. So many times you'll see telephone visits are easier because you're at least communicating throughout that entire time. And what happens is that technology, especially in our older individuals, can be a source of major frustration. Uh, and so what happens is sometimes they're not figuring out whether they have to press a button or to try and activate this. And we're spending a lot of our, our time, allotted 15, 20, 30 minutes of allotted uh, virtual visit time. And time is just evaporating away and we're not really accomplishing anything except they're just frustrated with the, with the link not working or something. So it's probably more productive use of their time and our time to just say, okay, let me just call you. And so I just call and we just communicate. So sometimes I'll send them the link and if I don't see them on within a minute or two, I either wonder, A, they didn't get the link, or B, they're struggling with it. Let me just call their house number. And they say, oh, no, no, I'm getting on this, so then I'll hang up. But otherwise, I'll just say, let's keep talk, start the conversation uh, with you and your spouse while we're doing this. And there are times when, even if they do it, the camera doesn't work, or the angle just isn't right. And so it's like, okay, at least in a telephone visit, it's not dependent on their Wi-Fi, their cell connection, and all these variables or their technological savvy and it's just pick up the phone, put it, put it to your ear or put it on speaker and let's, let's, let's at least accomplish some clinical management of your symptoms. I would imagine for the older patients um, and those who have a higher disease burden, it would really factor into how well they get along with telehealth visits. Absolutely. As a general rule, I would say I would agree with that, though I have had some you know, 80-year-olds surprise me and, and, and it's been very interesting to hear, that, how did you manage telehealth? Oh, well, my grandchild came in last week and set me up and told me what to do. So I have a post-it note, they show me the post-it note of what to do and the common troubleshooting. And so it's very endearing. And then I have some 60-year-olds who are like struggling with telehealth. Um, so it, there, there's been remarkable stories uh, of, of folks that have really come on board. And, and the longer this goes on, the more folks will be kind of, uh, you know, encouraged or rather more accurately pushed to do this because this is how they keep up with family members now. This is how they'll keep up with their friends. This is how they keep up. So I've had folks that say, you know, we go to church. Now we do virtual church services. They've done virtual baptisms, virtual weddings, virtual funerals. So this is becoming a bigger and bigger part of life. And I expect that that resistance and those issues to virtual will, will melt over the course of time. Mm -hmm. Dr. Hauser, anything to add? Well, I agree with Dr. Brew that there's positives and negatives. Um, it depends on the physician. It depends on the patient. And, you know, I think we're going to continue with sort of this hybrid model that uh, some patients will say, I want to do uh, telehealth. I, I live, I always laugh when my patients say, oh, my goodness, it took me an hour to get there. And I say, well, guess what? My commute's an hour. You live closer than I do every morning. But some patients may still say, I live an hour away. I want to do telehealth, in which case we'll say, okay. Fine, we'll do, we'll do telehealth. Um, and I also know, you know, even non-medical things like, um, you know, a financial meeting that, that I might have. I would rather sit at a table with the person because you can pick up a lot of 
nonverbal cues, et cetera. But right now it's all telehealth because it's just too risky to go into the office. But I think even there, it's a good example. I'd rather do in-person than just over Zoom. But if the drive is too difficult, all right, I'll accept the telehealth. So I think we'll continue with this hybrid model. I think the one place that we really need to think about is clinical trials. We do a lot of clinical trials. Dr. Baru does a lot of clinical trials. And right now, the vast majority of clinical trials are really designed for in-office evaluations. And a lot of us and a lot of experts around the country and around the world are thinking about, is there a way to do these trials solely via telehealth? Do we need to think about hybrid models? Or do we really need patients to come into the office to do these really critical clinical trials to ultimately get new medications to slow progression of disease and treat these symptoms that we're not really good at treating yet. Mm-hmm. So before, before we close, um, is there anything, any other takeaways? I mean, we're, we're kind of, if we ever get past this pandemic, um, you know, you both said we might go into this hybrid model. Telehealth may be with us uh, ongoing. I guess one big question that we'll all have to watch is will reimbursement for telehealth continue after the pandemic? Because that was, I know, hard for a lot of disciplines to get on board. And in some disciplines, they're still not being reimbursed for it. So um, this is something to think about. But anything else that um, you would want anyone listening to this podcast to, to kind of take away from both the study and our discussion? Dr. Hauser. Yeah, I'll just say right now, uh, this is my own personal experience. I mean, this has been going on for a good number of months, and I found myself getting a little more relaxed about how careful I was being. You know, I haven't gone to any restaurants. I haven't gone to the supermarket. I haven't gotten on the plane, and uh, I must admit, I was starting to think about, well, can I go to the beach to stay for a week for Thanksgiving week? And then a couple things hit me. We got an email about uh, somebody at the hospital, a uh, worker at the hospital who uh, was, was in the hospital as a patient on a ventilator. Uh, there was a case in the news about a young doctor who uh, unfortunately died. And it just reminds you that this COVID is really serious. Um, of course, it is has high risk but the older you are, but it can hit uh, young adults as well. And it really made me just say, you know, this is a marathon and you got to really stay vigilant until we have the tools to deal with it. So that's my personal feeling about it. And, you know, I've tightened up and going to try to continue to stay as safe as possible until we have those tools. Dr. Byron. I, I completely agree. I, I think we've seen a sea change uh, over the last six, seven months in our practices, but also in the way our patients have approached this. You know, first three months, I would say probably there was a massive change in our practices. Practices emptied out. We started virtual visits. People were loath to come in unless absolutely necessary. And then somewhere, at least for the greater D.C. area, somewhere around June, things started to change. And whether that was the fear of the surge went away or maybe we felt this was the, the maximum number of cases we were getting and things were on the way down. That, that really people started really coming in. We went from being maybe about 10% live to maybe about 50% live in a matter of a week or two. And I, I think as a practice, I don't know if we'll ever achieve our pre-COVID volume just because of distancing and not having a waiting room and making sure we have an extra exam room and room turnover. I, I think we'll probably reach about 70 to 80% of our clinical volume at, at maximum. I've, I've been tracking my volume weekly and I'm still not quite up to my pre-COVID volume. I'm 
probably about on a busy week, maybe 10, 15% off of it. On an average week, probably 20, 25% off of it. Um, but at the same time, our, our attitudes towards COVID have uh, evolved as well. We went from thinking this was the, the plague that was going to wipe us out to becoming a little bit more complacent, maybe managing a little more. I can tell you the way I would evaluate folks, the amount of PPE I would wear, how cautious I was. I've I'm starting to become a little bit more complacent and I have to watch for that. I can certainly see patients becoming more complacent. Uh, as Dr. Hauser mentioned, they had the chin strap mask is what we call it. You know, kind of the chin strap mask that's really not covering or protecting anything, but it's present, it's here. Um, and, and occasionally people feel a little self-conscious and put it on and then kind of drifts down. But you know, I don't think complacency is your friend in this sense. If you have outrun the virus, congratulations so far, but your risk of COVID continues. And I think you have to continue to be vigilant about it, which means all the things that we're looking at, you know, restricting air travel um, and restricting going to hotels or even vacationing. And even our trips to the supermarket look something like out of a sci-fi movie with masks and gloves going in to purchase just, you know, a week or two's worth of grocery shopping. So the world has changed. We must maintain as much as we can. We can, indeed it has. I want to thank you both for this discussion. This has been, I, I think, really, really wonderful. And I, I think our, our listeners will have a lot to take away from it. Um, so thank you both for joining us. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Thank you for joining us today. Remember to visit journalclubpodcast.com forward slash Parkinson's disease to receive your credit and evaluate this program. For our other neurology podcasts, please visit journalclubpodcast.com forward slash neurology. Our podcasts are a convenient way to earn your continuing medical education credits. <music>